Welcome to the Real Talk podcast, where CRE gets real. I'm Liz Berthelet, Director of Research at NAI Hunnaman, and your lively host. Today, we're here to discuss Boston's co-working environment, which has exploded over the past few years. Currently, Boston's shared workspace landscape encompasses well over a dozen operators from WeWork to Cambridge Innovation Center, and more growth is on the way. While general community space dominates, sector-specific spaces like clean tech, food, and biotech have established a foothold here as well. Coworking is not just for startups and freelancers anymore, though. The number of enterprise users setting up operations out, out of co-working spaces has grown exponentially as well. Liberty Mutual, Blackbaud, Amazon, GE Current, and Cambridge Semantics are just a few. With that, I've asked two rock stars in the local CRE research universe to join me in this discussion. To my left is Peter Conway, market analyst with CoStar. Hello, how's it going? And to my right is market economist Mark Hickey, also with CoStar. Hello, Liz. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, why don't you each give us a brief rundown of your background and highlight some interesting projects you've been working on? Well, all right. Um, again, this is Peter Conway. I'm a market analyst at CoStar. I've been with CoStar for approximately three years, started off in our research department, then moved to our sales comps group. And I've been a Boston market analyst for about a year. Um, I had a few internships in the industry before I started at CoStar, and then I also went to Wake Forest undergraduate. So um, uh, some interesting projects that we're working on, we're working on an analysis of Airbnb and how that might impact Boston Hotel and apartment fundamentals as well. Um, but I'm really excited to talk about co-working and how has it changed the landscape of Boston office. So my name is Mark Hickey. I am a uh, market economist with CoStar. I've been with CoStar for a long time now, 11 years. So it's Peter and our job to go out and, and talk with clients and inform them what's going on in the market. In terms of uh, background, I have an undergraduate in economics and finance from Syracuse University and an MBA from Boston College. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. First, let's talk about WeWork. The elephant in the room, what are your thoughts on WeWork's growth in Boston? I mean, they're taking down a lot of space. They've got a couple more locations they're opening up. What are your thoughts? I mean, they, they are, I think, one of the biggest stories um, in terms of the office market, not just in Boston, but I think nationwide. I think we had them as one of the largest um, lease signers in the past few years, um, taking down several millions of square feet. Um, I, uh, I, think, I think they are part of how uh, leasing space has changed. People want a more communal atmosphere, um, short-term leases where there's no longer-term commitments. Um, they also want the highest quality space to uh, get near the best talent. So I think it's part of how the office market has really evolved and changed. I think the question is whether they've expanded their footprint too dramatically. I know there's been a lot of questions about whether WeWork has overextended itself. But I think they're really one of the biggest stories um, nationwide and also coming up in Boston as well. I, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, the, the amount of space that they've been taking down sort of in these Class A towers uh, is really interesting because, you know, a few years ago when they entered the market, they were kind of in a tertiary-ish areas like the seaport before it got really hot in South Station. So, you know, now that they're 
in Back Bay, in the financial district. I think that's a really interesting story for the marketplace. So I, I guess I can't wait for WeWork to go public so I can short it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm sure you saw the analysis was done. I can't remember was the Wall Street Journal or was it uh, the Boston Globe. And this maybe like five or six months ago. They basically said the market cap for um, WeWork is the same as Boston Capital, right? But there was a Boston property, Boston yeah. And, you know, Boston Properties obviously owns their underlying real estate, but WeWork does not. Um, I think that, you know, as you talk to the guys at Regis, Regis will say, like, hey, look, we've been here before. We've overexpanded. Um, and, you know, see what happened to them in the recession in particular of, you know, 2001 during the tech wreck. So, in my opinion, uh, you know, WeWork will tell you that they're actually a stronger tenant than a regular tenant if there's a recession. We say, hey, look, you know, we have you have us as a lease, and also, too, that we have the underlying, you know, leases with our individual tenants, and that we can always find, you know, someone to replace somebody if, you know, they move out, et cetera. So it's actually easier. Um, in my opinion, having lived through a few recessions now, and if you look at, you know, not only the small companies that you know, use WeWork, but also the people that work remotely or in different offices. You have that, that large company that has, you know, five or ten people in Boston, for example, and so okay, well, it's better for us for us to get a WeWork space. That during a recession, what happens is the company decides, all right, we're going to cut jobs. Okay, we have these people who are not part of our core platform. They're in a different office. Let's cut those guys. Those are always the people that work remotely are always the easiest ones to get, to cut in many cases. And then also obviously too you have the smaller you know companies that will you know struggle um, you know during recessions etc. These are not you know, as it, you know anyone who works in real estate would say the difference between a high credit tenant and a not high credit tenant. So in my opinion, it's a, a major risk when the recession hits. When that is, I don't know. I don't think we're anything imminent. I think you know we're probably two or three years out uh, from a recession, but when it does happen, I think that uh, WeWork is going to run into some problems. Do you think their strategy to target more of these enterprise clients would help mitigate some of that risk? You know, it, it's my understanding that WeWork is moving away a little bit from the freelancer, from the gig economy, and you know they're targeting these tenants that need flexibility or they want the type of environment that WeWork offers and that's why they're kind of opening up shop there. Do you think that mitigates that risk or do you think they, you know, these tenants will pull rank and pull people out of there? Well, I think for sure what's going to happen is you'll, you'll see, you know, this company searching for, you know, 25,000 square feet or 50,000 square feet and then recession, sit, and recession hits and you'll find out, well, oh, they just discovered they have you know, 50,000 square feet too much in their existing space, let alone, you know, those needs for expansion gets completely eliminated. So that stuff can turn on a dime. Right, right. In my opinion. Okay, what about pricing? I looked into pricing earlier this week or later last week. I think on a per-person basis, co-working space tends to have a higher price point than traditional office leases. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Obviously, there's benefits to uh, flexibility, shorter lease terms, you know, you can get better coffee, you know, events, networking, um, all that kind of stuff that comes with a co-working space. What are your thoughts on pricing as it compares to regular leases? And have we been seeing the price of co-working space go up 
over the last couple of years, I only presume yes because of the popularity um, of that type of space. Um, well, I'll just give a little intro. So uh, Mark and I actually uh, went to go tour a co-working space at uh, Cambridge Innovation Center recently, and we talked to someone um, there, um, actually formerly used to work there, and uh, uh, he had an interesting point. He thought that the uh, point at which your company employment um, and when it becomes more cost-effective to move to a standard longer-term lease was about 8 to 10 people. Um, okay. So I thought that was a very interesting point about um, because I think in his view it was uh, the prices became uh, too much you to pay for someone to uh, manage the office that might that a co-working place provides someone to get the coffee like you mentioned. Um, so I think that was uh, very interesting to uh, to, to hear uh, at what point it becomes cost effective. It is uh, difficult to look at it from a per square foot perspective because they have the breakdowns and. Uh, some people sometimes they break down to true co-working space where it's just a free-for-all uh, searching for a desk and uh, sometimes you have the dedicated desk sometimes you have the personal office space so it's tough to uh, uh, kind of break it down about the per price per square foot um, but uh, sorry I got a little randomly there it's all good um, so my opinion I don't really necessarily feel that in the growth cycle that we're in, that is necessarily overpriced. And Peter's actually done some great research on this and found that, for the most part, you know, WeWork is in the tightest submarkets. Right? They're in the Back Bay. They're in Financial District. They're in, you know, East Cambridge. They're not out on 495. They're not in the you know tertiary submarkets along 128. So they're in you know submarkets that have very low vacancy rates. And I think that the you know the independent contractors, you say the freelancers, etc., need to be in these particular submarkets for because that's where their business is. Or as you mentioned, these you know companies that are there because hey, look, we ran out of space in our existing space, and we need to you know basically put our spillover into WeWork. I think that you know if you look down their their costs and their balance sheet, you know how much they're paying you know WeWork is not necessarily yeah I'm sure it's pricing in comparison to what they're paying for the overall rent. But it's not necessarily they're going to get you know sticker shock when that rent goes up a little bit. So I think the big thing again, the risk is is that you know when we hit the recession, that a lot of this demand for the WeWork space, or the, I should say, not WeWorking or any kind of co-working space in general, evaporates immediately. Right, right. Those are all good points. And it actually, this is a really good transition mark into my next question, which is about the suburbs. So what about the suburbs? Is there a place for co-working space outside of Boston? We've seen, obviously, in the inner suburbs, sort of Somerville, which I would kind of consider, you know, more urban than suburban. Um, and the Work Bar has done some locations inside Staples, kind of in that 128 area. Maybe Norwood is coming off the top of my head. Um, but is, is there a need for this kind of space in the suburbs? And if so, where's the most likely locations? Well, I guess I'll kind of maybe steal Peter Spender. He's done some really good research on this. It was interesting looking at Somerville. Somerville had one of the highest percentages of uh, co-working space. What was it, Peter? Yes, it was approximately about 5% of its entire office inventory was in co-working space. There's several large operators um, out there, Brooklyn Boulders, um, Greentown Labs, I believe, is another, the the clean tech. And they just expanded pretty significantly, I think, sort of in that same complex as Brooklyn Boulders. Oh, yes. Uh, 
forget the name, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Continue. Uh, so I think you know if um, you know you look at Somerville, you've got kind of a couple things going on. Obviously, you actually have a lot of you know your talent, your high tech talent is in Somerville. So all the people that are working in East Cambridge, who many of them live in Somerville, um, and also too, I think one of the differences between being in Somerville and being say in the suburbs is that you probably these people that are taking these co working spaces probably live in tiny little apartments in Somerville. Uh, versus, you know, your traditional single-family home out in the suburbs where, hey, if you're lucky, maybe you have enough room for a home office or you, know, you have one in the basement or something like that. So I think that takes away a little bit from the freelancer. Um, but I do think that, you know, there is a need for co-working space in the suburbs. And, you know, my opinion is going to be it's just kind of going to be close by where your traditional office space is, much like we've seen in, you know, in the back bay and the financial district. So that would be, you know, Waltham and Burlington would be prime candidates for where you'd see some of those co-working spaces. I would agree with that. I think um, we've seen tenant migration towards the city this cycle. You know, tenants are moving in from 495, and we've seen a lot of popularity in 128 West and, you know, 128 Northwest, sort of that Lexington, Burlington um, Waltham, Watertown area, um, and I, you know, I would agree that there probably is a need for m more co-working space in sort of that 128 ring, um, because you do have a lot of office stock, you've got, you know, tight housing market, all that kind of stuff, which I think lends itself to that kind of product. Um, I just don't, we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen a major operator kind of take the plunge into the suburbs. Yeah, some of it could be uh, demographics as well. I mean, so if you look at, um, let's take millennials, everyone's talking about millennials, 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 and the reason why is they represent a disproportionate portion of the population. So right now, your typical millennial, um, and we define millennials as born between 1980 and 2000, is between ages 38 and 18. And there's actually, if you were to stack them all up in a chart, you'd see like uh, a greater than average number around 27 or 28. So um, basically, right now, uh, it's cool and fun to live in the city, just like most people under 30. The difference between this generation and previous generations uh, to Generation X is that there's a lot more millennials. Um, so I think that's created that whole urban thing. The question is, is that what happens when millennials start getting older, right? So if you look at the average age for a first-time college-educated mother, is 33, which coincides exactly with the average age across the country at a first-time home buyer. So, you know, five years from now, when that kind of bubble of millennials starts hitting their early 30s, are we going to see a movement away from the cool urban districts where you're renting into the suburbs where you're owning your home? And does that mean that we'll have more covert and have less demand for, say, Somerville and more demand for, you know, again, areas uh, around Waltham or Burlington, or maybe other areas, too. I'll add uh, one more thing. Uh, this kind of hits on what Mark mentioned about the relationship between vacancies and percentage of your office inventory and co-working. There's also a strong relationship uh, between rents as well. There's a really high percentage of co-working and, of course, the costly submarkets, uh, whether that be East Cambridge, uh, Back Bay, Financial District, um, and so one of the things that we think that drives people to want to go to co-working spaces is not having to lock in that long-term lease at a pricing rate. Say you're a startup, you want to, 
you're not sure if your business is going to take off, and so you rent at a co-working space and pay maybe higher rates, but you're not locked into that long-term rate. Well, out in the burbs where rents are generally cheaper, um, you can perhaps rent a place for, you might not mind locking in a longer-term rate at a much lower um, rate. So uh, that is something also to consider um, for co-working in the burbs as well. It's just much more affordable in some of these more expensive areas. Right. And once you get outside of 128, office rents tend to be relatively flat over the, long, over the longer term. I mean, I think we have seen some growth in recent years just because, you know, this cycle has been great for greater Boston. Um, but, you know, if you go further out, you're looking at high teens, low 20s per square foot, which is not the same as what you're going to pay for office space in the back bay, which mm-hmm. is, you know, high 60s for class A space. Um, all, in, all interesting thoughts. So my final question has to do with what do we think some of the implications for landlords might be? Um, you know, landlords that have properties that are heavily weighted towards shared office operators. I know WeWork has purchased some of their buildings, correct? In New York, they purchased a building. From what I understand, they've been looking at single user offices in Boston, I think hoping to do sort of a sale leaseback kind of situation so that they can control the building. Um, Maybe some more of that will happen, but what do you think there might be in terms of implications for landlords? And, you know, Mark, clearly you think once the recession hits, we'll probably see some of that co-working space go away, so it's probably a risk to a landlord that has an operator in 50% of their building. But I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts about what implications could be. Um, well, I'll just give a, a little insight, uh, anecdote. Uh, my dad is in real estate in Charlotte, and uh, he was working for his company, and they signed a lease with WeWork. And their view about uh, the lease with WeWork, and obviously they're aware of the concerns that particularly that Mark expressed, uh, but in their view, uh, the build-out was much more expansive, extensive with a uh, WeWork company. And uh, they thought that, hey, if WeWork goes under three to four years from now, we have this awesomely built-out space that we believe can we can easily uh, lease out to another tenant. Um, they also believe that having a tenant like WeWork in the building was an um, advantage for them because for them to attract another big-name tenant to their building, what they can say to this tenant is, hey, if you have needs for extra space. We have WeWork right in the building, so you can just easily put a few employees right into that um, space. Um, I know Charlotte is a much different different market for uh, that, and also I think WeWork was just starting off. Um, but uh, I will say I think there are some advantages of having WeWork in your building beyond uh, what we discussed so far. Yeah, the general rule I've heard is that most landlords don't want to have more than, say, 10 or 20% exposed to WeWork or any type of other co-working space, not necessarily to say that, you know, we work as, you know, dominates everything. Um, and there was a building in Cambridge, I, Liz, you probably know the name of it better than I do, that uh, has WeWork in it, and then I forget whether it was uh, Google or Microsoft um, that started off in the WeWork space, eventually started looking around, and then decided to take, you know, a higher floor in that same building. Oh, right, yeah. yeah so that worked so- out pretty well for the landlord in that particular case. Um, so I guess if you, as a landlord, to keep a limited amount of WeWork, you know, uh, I don't think it's a huge risk. 
Um, in terms of, you know, we work uh, buying space. I mean, I, it makes a sound strategy, right? I mean, we work the whole thing about creating an environment, and the more if you own something, now I can have one hundred percent say about what happens in that environment. Although anyone in real estate will tell you that, you know, well, you need a lot of capital to buy real estate. Um, you know, right now it doesn't seem to be that you know, or I should say that we work seems to have a pretty um, easy time or easier than some of these smaller uh, co-working spaces raising the capital to buy stuff. But still, that is, you know, a lot of money to go out and buy some of these things. So I think they'll do more of it, but I don't think that, uh, you know, kind of the usual example we start off with, that WeWork is going to become Boston Properties. Right. That makes sense. Do you think that there could end up being competition from landlords themselves? I know we've heard of some landlords who are trying to sort of create their own co-working space in their buildings, um, more so likely to incubate companies. So, hey, come in, take our take our co-working space, and then they grow up, and then they lease space in that building. Do you think that ever becomes a competitor for sort of these other operators, or is it you really need to know what you're doing to kind of succeed as a co-working operator? My opinion would be that some landlords will do it well, uh, but most landlords won't. Um, and you know, it comes down to just you know, brand recognition. So I go in and I want co-working space, and I Google, you know, co-working, right? So um, that owner space is going to come. They're going to be on page two or page three, you know, which basically means that no one's going to find them on Google, right? When you're looking for that stuff. Um, I guess if I was doing it myself and I could find some way to incentivize a broker to make sure that, you know, hey, if you do this, maybe you, you know, you get extra commission or whatever. But in general, I know that, you know, a lot of the brokers don't really like to go after the small space because there's not a whole lot of commission there. Um, and I think that uh, when Peter and I were at the conference and uh, there was an, another uh, co-working company, I can't remember the name of it, and, um, you know, yeah, yeah I, for, I forget the name of it, but yeah, he was in the co-working, but his whole thing was creating like he would take over like the lobby of your building. Oh, right? Convene. Yes, yeah. yes. Yep. And his whole thing was like, "Hey, look, you could do this yourself, but this is all we do, and we're good at it, and we're going to make sure that you know it has the checks all the boxes that people are looking for. And yeah, you could try it yourself, but you're not going to do it as good as as we are. In fact, you know we're going to end up." Increasing your bottom line, not you know costing you money. So uh, the line, the short answer to your question is, I think that some landlords can do it and do it well, but that most landlords just don't have the, the time uh, to do it better than the uh, WeWorks and the companies. Awesome! This has been great. I want to thank our guests Peter and Mark for hanging out with me and expounding on all things co-working. Follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or on Twitter at RealTalkCRE for more information on new episodes, myself, and our guests.